We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by the Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Welcome to our second Backlisted Special. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund books they really want to read. And although today I'm not joined for once by my literary partner in virtue, Andy Miller, I'm delighted to welcome a true friend of the show returning for her record-breaking ninth appearance, (laughs) the writer Una McCormack. (laughs) Hello, Una. Hi, John. Very good to be here. (laughs) Well, very, very good to have you. And um, we have, as they say, a fully packed show. But for those people who don't know who Una from previous, I can't believe there's anybody who hasn't heard Una on a previous backlisted. But Una is the author of nearly two dozen science fiction novels based on TV shows such as Star Trek, Doctor Who, Firefly and Blake Seven. Her most recent books include the autobiography of Mr. Spock, and Star Trek Picard Second Self. She's on the editorial board of Gold SF, an imprint of Goldsmiths Press aimed at publishing new voices in intersectional feminist science fiction, of more anon. Uh, Their first publications are Mathematics for Ladies by Jesse Randall and Empathy by Hoa Pham. Now, the format of these backlisted specials differ from the main show in that they feature a guest choosing a number of books in an area they know and care about. So today, amazingly enough, <laughs> Una has selected five of the science fiction novels which helped make her the writer that she is today. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about five different books. Five, I have to say, some of them I'd heard of, some of them I hadn't. Some of them read, some of them I hadn't. But they all, it, taken as a whole, it's an extraordinary list. Good. Well, I'm glad about that. I, I toyed with doing recipe books, but I can't... <laughs> Can't cook. So I could have done a Le Guin, actually, if we'd done recipe books. She's got recipes in one of them, always coming home. But no, I thought, uh, let's stick with science fiction. Although, is there, there possibly the publisher, you see my little publisher kind of antennae beginning to sort of twitch there. Is there a science fiction uh, cookbook at some point in the future? Who knows? <laughs> yeah, well, all these little pellets of food or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, what's first on your pile? So I, when I was thinking about these, I thought, oh, t- you know, t- lots of people don't read science fiction. So should I sort of come up with a list that, you know, oh, this is kind of your gateway? 
And then I thought, nah, I'm just going to go straight in with the with the hard crack. So. And I, I have to say, I'm really glad. I am someone who I, I am not a science, and I should say that to everybody. This is a this is a conversation that is not between two science fiction kind of uh, aficionados. I would say that my kind of taste and interest in sci-fi was really was probably like a lot of my generation, kindled by puffin books by Arthur C. Clarke of Time and Stars, of reading Asimov, a foundation trilogy at school. And it kind of developed in parallel to my interest in fantasy, reading Tolkien in particular. Um, and it didn't tip over into the... There were kids at school um, who were reading, you know, who were reading kind of the magazines and really getting into the the kind of the harder end of sci-fi, which I didn't go. So I very much got, a, I think, a, the, a general reader's impression of, of science fiction rather than a sort of specialist inside knowledge. In many ways, that's my reading experience too, because I, I found that there's quite a fixed canon, or there has been in the past with science fiction. And I found when I got to Asimov, didn't like the sexual politics, didn't like the politics... And again and again, I would kind of run up against this with with the kind of science fiction that people go, oh, you must read this, you must read this. This is the canon, this is what you must read. And so I kind of started to come in sideways and pick up books that were... I would always pick up a book if it had a woman author. So that was a starting point. I go, I'll give that a crack. And so my journey into it was quite sideways as well. So I think I um, it overlaps a lot with my interest in utopian fiction, um, my background as a sociologist, so I found I was I was reading as a sociologist as much as someone who was interested in prose style. I'll forgive quite a lot of inelegancy in a science fiction novel if the ideas are good enough. So the books I've kind of picked kind of trap my journey in in a way. Uh, some of them people will know. I'll be amazed if there's anyone who's read all five of these. Possibly some <laughs> of my friends. <laughs> Um, but that that's exactly what uh, sort of exactly what these specials are for is to come come at subjects i mean it, it would be very easy to say the five greatest uh, science fiction novels of all time and and i'm sure we we've, we've probably all got a list of those and but this is not that it's much more interesting and i have to say i found it i found it so interesting uh, delving deeply so What's what's uh, where 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 where's where our entry starting? point? Where are we starting? Where we starting? So we're starting with ten-year-old uh, Una McCormack in um, I think I'm in Eccleston Library uh, in St Helens, and a, a shout out to Frank Cottrell Boyce, <laughs> yes, the, other, the other the other St Helens. You don't have to come from St Helens to be on this, <laughs> but, it on helps. this podcast, but it helps. <laughs> a, a credits to Notre Dame and West Park education system, I think, of the seventies uh, uh, and eighties. So um, I'm in uh, Eccleston Library. I pick up. A, a curious book uh, called The Far Side of Evil by Sylvia Engdahl, which had a very, very striking cover uh, of a sort of uh, uh, a young woman's head with a, a, a kind of cutaway, like a, a model. You can look into her brain, you see uh, somebody is spying on her, spying on her thoughts. Um, so I picked this to represent my pre-teen reading because I think we get science fiction at that sort of age. And I loved this book. I had this book out of the library again and again and again and again and again. Um, uh, something about it really, 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 really captured my imagination. It's not an easy read. It's it's a very bleak book in many ways. Uh, it deals with uh, 
issues such as well, there's, there's quite an extensive passage about sensory deprivation, which I'm, I'm amazed I got to read this book. Um, so it concerns a young woman who's a sort of representative of, a, of quite a um, sophisticated intergalactic power. And what they do is they, they send anthropological agents to visit worlds that are not quite as well. We, I'll say developed, but, you know, let's just use that language. Um, and she's observing this world. Uh, which is on the verge of nuclear war. And what they're interested in is this idea of the critical stage, which is a point in a kind of civilization's uh, history uh, where they'll either blow themselves up <laughs> or divert their talents to, to other interests like space travel. And there they're studying this. And this world is very close uh, to blowing itself up. Uh, and uh, a thriller ensues. Uh, and our character has to stay undercover throughout. And, I mean, the interesting thing about Engdahl, who mm. I, I had encountered um, as a, as probably in the early 70s um, through, yeah. the, through the Puffin list, and there's a, there's yeah. a, a book called Heritage of the Star that Puffin published. But what I hadn't realised until I started to, to read for this podcast was she really believes in this... Um, in this critical stage of civilization and that she's a strong believer that, that in, in 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 the colonization of space and uh an amazing woman who's still alive mm, and still regularly up, yeah. updating her website incredibly yeah <laughs> yeah um so uh that's that i i found that really interesting the idea that that this that, that these these books aren't just kind of uh, you know they're not sort of they're not metaphorical she really believes she really believes absolutely in... yeah there's a kind of proselytizing aspect to them as well perhaps more measured than an elon musk <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah um but that but that's definitely there in her fiction and i think what this book gave me is i, I went on to do a phd in sociology and I think what this book gave me, along with Le Guin, who I was reading at the same time, was it gave me some of the kind of mental apparatus to start thinking that way. Oh, societies can change. Well, oh, she she suggests they have kind of levels of development. Well, you wouldn't believe that now if you were a sociologist, you kind of drop that idea quite quickly. But it gives you the kind of brain work to be able to think in that way. And that, for me, is what science fiction is all right. If, if I'm reading good science fiction, I can feel the synapses rewiring. It's doing something to my mind. It's making me think differently. And that's what really good science fiction should do. If it gets to you at 10, you're set. <laughs> and, and, and it's an interesting... There are two things that, that are also on uh, Engdahl. One is the, the difficulty of... Um, she writes about when she first started writing in the late 60s and early 70s, having novels published, there wasn't a category called young adult. Um, she just so the, knowing what's right. I noticed that the, the Puffin, who were usually pretty loose on these things, just said for Heritage of the Star, which was written after um, Far Side of Evil. Uh, that just said an exciting, demanding, and thought-provoking tale of the future for older readers. Older readers. <laughs> well, in uh, I went online in the in the sort of mid nineties, and I, I found her website because, like you said, she she sort of you know she really was an early adopter of the web. And I emailed her and said, you know, oh god, this is really exciting. I think it's the first time I contacted uh, a writer like that. And I said, I, I adored this book. It, it meant so much to me. Uh, I read it when I was ten years old. And I got this email back saying, you read this book at 10? <laughs> oh, 
my God. <laughs> There's no way that should have been in your hands by any stretch of the imagination. You should have been about 13 or 40 older readers. Yeah, exactly this kind of category of uh, of uh, a young adult. I think what they were called in science fiction, they were called juveniles, weren't they? If you kind of got to Heinlein, yeah. you were reading it a juvenile. Yeah. yeah? <laughs> Obviously, it's as you say, it's got a cracking plot. And it is, as you say, it is, it is sort of quite bleak. Um, there's a sort of love story uh, that, um, spoiler alert, doesn't end out quite as... No, I think the love story perhaps isn't the strongest part. I think the no. relationship between her, uh, Ilana, the, the, the lead, and her female friend, Kari, Kari. Uh, who yeah. knows nothing about the real situation, is probably one of the best bits of the book. Uh, you learn about placebo effects from that narrative <laughs> as well. It's another thing this book gave me. So all sorts going on. Yeah, because I mean, she was a she was a computer programmer, I think. Well, must I have been a so, very yeah. early com- computer programmer, uh, uh, Sylvia Engdahl. And I, I love that she says in in one of the notes on the book, she says some th- readers thought I used space fiction as a vehicle for political commentary, whereas in fact. I use political melodrama to dramatise <laughs> ideas about the importance of space. There's a lot of science fiction writers do this, I think, yeah. kind of, you know. Um, and I, I think the way she gets away with it is that I think when science fiction becomes too didactic, obviously the prose is going to suffer. But I never feel that her prose is bad. There might be no. lengthy sections like there are in 1984 of, you know, opinion A being countered by opinion <laughs> B. But yeah, yeah, that's the grand tradition of that's Hitler Day. And, you know, it's utopia, isn't it? Um but there's always a good story around it, I think. Is there a bit that you can read, do you think, that would give us a... Yeah, I, don't, I won't spoil it, but I'll just read the start, which I think, um, imagine me... I, I think she I, I, I think she's a really good... I think she's just a really good writer of... of they're, good, um, they're good on a kind of sentence good, level, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. yeah I think so. And also, it's just, keep, you know, pe- proper page turner. I mean, I, I was... Um, I was really... I really raced through this one. Good, I'm glad. I, it's It's a book that deserves to survive, I think. And, you know, the whole space thing is like, I mean, the idea is that that it's almost like an evolutionary thing that she thinks, isn't it? That we get to a certain point in our development as a species where we need to colonise other. And she's very interesting. She's very clear that she doesn't think we should be colonising places that are inhabited by other other races or species that we would be that would be she, so she's anti-imperialist in that way that we should that we should be expanding in order to it's almost like it's sort of spiking the the guns of aggression and overcrowding and and the ruination of the planet she she keeps updating it she updated it for 9-11 and then she updates it for the the climate emergency that this idea is we need to get into space but you know, not in a kind of, as you say, in a sort of ghastly Elon Musk kind of way. Yeah, and don't take the same problems, but use it as a diversion of energy into something better, uh, which I think is good. And I think at the back of her mind, secretly, like all of us, she thinks that if we just get out there, then uh, the Vulcans will come past and introduce us to a massive galactic veneration. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Genuine alternatives. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> yeah, genuine alternative universe. Yeah, great. Should I read the start? Yeah, go on, go on. It's good. So we join our protagonist, Alana, partway through the story, uh, and uh, uh, we find very quickly that she's uh, she's been imprisoned. So I'll read a little bit of it. The wind is howling through the trees outside, a cold, hateful wind. By standing on the bunk, I can just barely reach the window. It's quite dark now and the stars are brilliant, though they seem terribly far away. 
they at least are familiar and comforting, a reminder of home. There's no use pretending I'm not scared. I'm in prison and I do not think that I shall get out. I'm not guilty of the charges against me. I'm not at all what my interrogators think I am. They know nothing of my real identity beyond my first name, Alana, and the fact that I seem to be a surprisingly young girl to be involved in a sabotage plot. They'd be even more surprised if they knew the truth. That's great. And uh, again, I, 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 you know, one of the other things I like about it, although she does have kind of telepathic uh, capabilities, that there isn't that kind of, um, there isn't that sort of, Deus Ex Machina thing that I, I dislike in a lot of fantasy of you know oh I've got I can do I can do real proper magic and I can do uh, and in that sense she reminds me of uh, your next choice. <laughs> <laughs> well, what can we say about the great Ursula Le Guin? Eh? It was uh, I I think you know when you asked me to do this I said should we just do five Le Guin books or shall I yeah because we very very easily could have could have done that and I really hummed and hawed about which one to do uh, but at the end of the day it, it could only be the dispossessed which I'm holding up in my beautiful wow. oh, beautiful edition which is a, a very cheap paperback completely in black the beautiful red anarchy symbol uh and um, and that's that's what the dispossessed is. It's it's Le Guin's working through in novel form of uh, the political philosophy of anarchism. It's it's Le Guin's. I think it's a. She does two novels back to back: Left Hand of Darkness and The Dispossessed. And I think they're just exceptionally good. Uh, people tend to like one more than the other, uh, and and well, you know, they love both, but there's one that particularly speaks to them. And it's the dispossessed that spoke to me. Um, I love it. Never tire of this book. One of the things that's interesting about uh, science fiction is it goes right right back, doesn't it, to the to the beginnings of the novel form. If you think of Francis Bacon's Utopia or Jonathan Swift's um, uh, that that's utopian. Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels. It isn't a utopian, but it is. It has that kind of other worlds, other peoples, that kind of that att- attempt to try and understand social organisation, political organisation, political philosophy through um, through placing it in pl- in places that aren't real, that aren't that aren't that aren't part of our kind of uh, known reality. And I agree. I think the dispossessed. I, I always thought I preferred the left hand of darkness, but having reread. <laughs> <laughs> the dispossessed for this it's beautiful isn't it it's so elegant i mean and this is properly beautifully beautifully written i mean there's it's it's a it's a great novel it's just a great novel it's not a great science fiction novel it's a it's one i think one of the one of the great modern novels but i mean we should say a little bit about what, what it is because one of the great things about this is there are some uh some of those sort of trip to the moon type utopian novels or even news news from nowhere by by um william yes. morris are annoying <laughs> because <laughs> because the utopia is too utopian yeah and actually this is what's genius about yeah. the dispossessed is an anaris the planet that is the anarcho syndicalist um planet isn't is far from perfect it's 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 gone rotten hasn't it something is rotten in the uh in the in the state there yeah and and she i think the subtitle that's on some editions is an ambiguous utopia so and i I think this is what part of what she's doing in in this book is uh is saying again and again utopia isn't a blueprint okay utopia is practice utopia is method 
utopia is a way of being in the world. It's something that we carry with us. And when the lead, Shevok, leaves his uh, failing utopia or his troubled utopia, Anaris, and goes to Urus, he still carries with him the principles that uh, he was brought up with. He, he carries the utopianism with him. Uh, so, and, and that's the point of the book, I, th- I think, is that utopia is not something we can just leave, achieve and then, you know, uh, leave to get on with things. Utopia is a kind of constancy, uh, a way of being in the world and a way of keeping these principles going in, in everyday interactions. Um, oh, it's, I, I, I can't tell uh, people listening how much I love this book and how much they're going to get from it. Consume it. <laughs> Some interesting things that come up having reread it again and um Uras is the opposite in many ways isn't it it's it's incredibly yeah. opulent um uh place but it's but it's patriarchal and it's cat and it's definitely capitalist and they dress in these in you know the everything the food and the and the and the, the clothing is kind of very elegant and but he turns on them out it's it's it reminds me it's it's I'm always reminded of um, of, of kind of the, the those brilliant artists that came out of the Soviet Union uh, with with Le Guin. You know that he's kind of he aspires towards the sort of the what you might call the Western um, opulence, but in his heart he also believes in the in the kind of um, there's a brilliant bit where he turns around and accuses the the Uret. Ura Esti of you are all in jail, each alone, solitary, with a heap of what he owns. You live in prison, die in prison. It is all I can see in your eyes. The wall, the wall, the wall being also a, wall, a, a really wall. important metaphor for, for essential message. But it's yeah. T.S. Eliot but there, he, isn't it's it? That idea that yeah. we're kind of we're we that they are just as much. Mm. I mean, you know, that they're 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 sort of prisoners for all, for all their kind of um, apparent freedom. Exactly that, yeah. And and he comes to this place and it makes no sense to him. Uh, the way, the ordinary ways that people behave are just, they seem insane to him that people allow these kinds of permissions over themselves. In his own mind, he remains free. But if you when you go back to the other way the, 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 the society comes from, I was, he, he is also kind of, I mean, he's a brilliant scientist, and without going into the, the whole plot, he's kind of he is uh, he he clashes with authority, doesn't he? That the whole idea in in Anaris is that the children don't the children aren't allowed to talk about anything that's that's interesting to them. They have to talk about stuff that's interesting to others. Anything that's interesting to you is called egoizing. Egoizing, yes, or uh, 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 hanging on to things. You, the worst you can sort of say to people is that, although that's so proprietarian yeah. of you. Um, and I think what has happened on Anaris is that uh, uh, perhaps with any sort of revolutionary group, uh, you know, the, the the pieties and the uh, the show of it, uh, the performance of it has become more important than the actuality. So uh, Shevik is sort of driven away because people are jealous. Uh, of his talent uh, and and they think that uh, you know they they make him feel unwelcome because they uh, make him feel that his talent has no place he's not he's not being part of the group he's trying to get special uh, preferential treatments uh, which is the reason he leaves and goes to Urus but uh, uh, there are a lot of very pious people on Anaris 
um, and uh, a, a lot of people for whom the revolution is is lip service rather than uh, lived reality. She's one reason he goes. Uh, and um, well, I won't spoil the plot because I think people really should read it. Um, I'll get you to read a little bit in a moment, but I did want to just one thing that I, I, it's it's less ambiguous than I thought mm. it was about the role of women. Mm-hmm. I mean, a, a lot of I mean, it has had criticism from from some uh, feminist mm-hmm. critics as being kind of that Shevek is very much yeah. he was based yeah. apparently on Oppenheimer. The the the, Whom the her uh, father the new, knew, didn't he? Who yeah. her father knew, yeah. And that it's kind of it's a big you know it's a sort of male hero and the and the although Odon, who is the the, the kind of the founder of the uh, the anarchist philosophy on Anaris is a woman. Um, I, I, I mean, it's, it seems to me that it's it, that that didn't spoil my enjoyment of the book. But I just I just wondered. My feeling with the Gwyn is that feminism is a is a second language to her. It's something that she learns uh, through writing science fiction and through getting critiques from people like um, Joanna Ross, who was flu- you know a first language speaker of feminism. And this book is seventy four. We're just hitting yes. the middle of the, the women's movement. And by the time you get to a book like Tahanu, which completely subverts Earthsea, Le Guin is fluent in feminism. And you see this transition in her work. And she takes Earthsea and she goes, it's not good enough. I've made mistakes here. I'm going to work with this. I'm going to change this. And Tahanu, I think, is one of her best books, which is the fourth book of Earthsea. I know some people don't like it. They are wrong. That's what we like. That's, that's the kind of opinion we like on Backlist as you know. Um, brilliant. And it was it was seventy four. Yeah. It was published uh, Harper and Row in the States. Galantz, obviously mm-hmm. in in the UK. Um, do you want to just read a, a, a little just yeah. to give us? Because I do think one of the great joys of this book is the prose. I mean, it really it really is beautiful. Absolutely. And I, I think we we sort of referred to her uh, her father before, who was very eminent uh, uh, anthropologist uh, Theodore Kroeber. Uh, and uh, I, I like to think that this sort of comes from um, uh, 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 Le Guin watching her father, uh, and her husband, of course, is a was a is was a is a retired academic. Uh, so this is uh, when Shevet gets to Urus, and he he's at the university, and he he starts teaching. Um, they were superbly trained; these students, their minds were fine, keen, ready, and when they weren't working, they rested. They were not blunted and distracted by a dozen obligations. They never fell asleep in class. Their society maintained them in complete freedom from want, distraction and cares. What they were free to do, however, was another question. It appeared to Shevik that their freedom from obligation was in exact proportion to their lack of freedom of initiative. He was appalled by the examination system when it was explained to him he could not imagine a greater deterrent to the natural wish to learn than this pattern of cramming information, disgorging it at demand. At first he refused to give any tests or grains, but this upset the university administrators so badly that, not wishing to be discourteous to his hosts, he gave in. He asked his students to write a paper on any problem in physics that interested them and told them he'd give them all the highest marks so the bureaucrats would have something to write on their forms. A good many students came to him to complain They wanted him to set problems, to ask the right questions. They didn't want to think about questions, but to write down the answers they had learned. Some of them objected strongly to his giving everyone the same mark. How could the diligent students be distinguished from the dull ones? What was the good in working hard? 
If no competitive distinctions were to be made, one might as well do nothing. Well, of course, Shevik said, troubled. If you do not want to do the work, you shouldn't do it. Oh, it's so good. She's yeah, uh, You know, that reminds me of that. <laughs> I, I don't know whoever. is the Education is the process by which the notes of the professor are reproduced in the notebooks of the students without passing through the minds <laughs> of either. So that, and, exactly. And, <laughs> and, 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 yeah, I mean, I think Shevek is a, is, a, is, a, is a fantastic, rich and complex character as well. Really um, interesting. I did a fantastic panel on this book with uh, uh, Francis Spufford was part of it and a, and a wonderful... Um, physicist uh from cambridge called gina halabi and we we had her there to talk about that the physics was any good <laughs> she said you know what let let's pass a veil over the physics because the novel is good <laughs> you definitely get yes i mean the thing is it although you know there is there is more we'll come on to more or less convincing use of physics in other books we're going to talk about we took it all we brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Oh, it's such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son? They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Um, the third choice uh, is what, Una? So uh, I decided to pick um, uh, something by Octavia Butler. Uh, and uh, I, I thought I won't go with the novels for which she's best known. Um, I'm going to go with the short Kindred and Parable of the Sower, Parable of the Talents. I'm going to go for her short stories Um so she hardly wrote any short stories, half a dozen, I think. And they're all collected in a, in a wonderful publication called Blood Child and other stories. And I, uh, uh, the thing about um, Butler, who uh, are probably one of the best post-war American science fiction, sort of post-60s uh, American science fiction and, and writers. And multi-awarding, like Le Guin, one Nebulas, one Hugos. Exactly I mean, one, that. One everything yeah. going. Genius grants, genius awards, yeah. And was for a long time probably the only, certainly the most prominent woman of colour writing science fiction. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think there was her and Delaney uh, and, uh, and and then, but but for a long time. So absolutely trailblazing, I think. Um, and her early death, I think, was a real, it was a shattering blow. I think we all feel there would have been another Parables um, a novel. There would have been a sequel to another novel. In these short stories, you can see the germs of novels that were emerging. Um, and she never thought of herself as a short story writer. Uh, and yet I think um, so there's maybe six short stories in this and three of them pick up awards. I mean, I was going to say, because in a way, again, one of the things, the engines of, of science fiction uh, kind of uh, publishing and, and yeah. has been the short story, uh, the great magazine culture of the 50s and 60s. 
um, and that, that was a sort of international movement. I mean, we've, we've talked about the Strugatsky brothers on, on Backlisted, but, uh, but short stories were the sort of the, the, the kind of the, the currency. Absolutely, for, and, for, and for, continue for, for to be. I mean, it fiction. still has a strong, uh, uh, both paper uh, and online magazine are still there. I think some of these magazines are still going. Asimov's is still going. Uh, Fantasy and SF is still going. You've got online places like Strange Horizons now. But I think people feel it's your apprenticeship in science fiction that you kind of you chip away at a handful of shorts the award you know people still get awards they're still very prestigious it's almost unique in a way i can't think of another another genre in which that happens some of them i think are, you know they're barely even i would say science fiction there's 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 one of them that, that is um i think it's called crossover but you can't get you can't get past the first one which is one of the most terrifying and brilliant and weird. Uh, she's such an extraordinary writer, isn't she? I mean, I, I've, I previously had read Kindred, but this is, this is, and I know Andy's talked to about her, but this is this is something else. Do you want to give us the hideous <laughs> pitch? Yeah, so uh, a little context to this. I, I, I taught creative writing for a long time and I, I taught a course on the short story uh, and I was starting to get bored with the science fiction stories I picked, so I kind of threw it out to the internet, as you do. And they said, "Well, you've got to do Blood Child by Octavia Butler. That'll that'll <laughs> that'll, raise that'll the... sort, as it were, the the the, 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 the worms from the flies, them, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the humans from the slick." So um, I went and had a read of it. And I thought, "Oh my God, they're gonna oh, can I?" And then I thought, <laughs> "Certainly can." Yeah. So so I gave them this short story. Um, I I think it's worth saying that it's visceral. It's shocking. Uh, it's inspired by an unpleasant encounter that the author had with a bot fly, which is a, which which lays its <laughs> eggs under the skin, and you're not a, you're in order to get rid of it without I- I- inducing infection, you're supposed to allow the maggot to hatch. Exactly that, and from this quite unpleasant material, she generates uh, a, a a horrifying and. Uh, unflinching and relentless short story about what it means to be living in a sort of symbiotic relationship with another species um so uh, I, I don't really want to give this story away in many ways I, I think people should should sit and read it i can read the start i mean things that i would say about it are that it's weirdly erotic <laughs> um which it really shouldn't be i mean this is like gregor samsa um, actually ending up in a relationship with a with a human in his insect like form, as you say that the, the tlick the tlick the tlick are kind of farming humans to carry their eggs, and that sounds obviously awful and grotesque and it is, but they they also they groom them emotionally as well as physically, so the, the, there's a there's a closeness and a tenderness. Yes, there is, and it's and it's not like they're animals. It's it's more like it's more like they're part of the household. Yeah, she was very resistant to uh, uh, people saying that this was an allegory for slavery, and and I think she's right. It's a much more nuanced story than that. She called it a love story, which I think is a really you know. Um, but people should read it uh, uh, and and read the whole collection. Uh, Speech sounds is about a pandemic. Yes. Uh, where 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 uh, people lose the ability to speak, and the very long the evening and the morning and the night, which is another one about a disease which 
uh, which is called DGD, which um, calls a dissociative state characterised by violent psychosis and self-harm. I mean, There's no pity in these stories, yeah. <laughs> there, um, I, I saw a, a, a remark online, the, the writer Shveta Narayan, she says that, uh, um, uh, you know, the novels are unflinching, but Butler's short stories are all bone, and that's exactly right. Everything is purred down. Her prose style is already uh, really purred down, but in the short stories, nothing's wasted. So, uh, yeah. Shall we have the start? What do yeah, you think? Go, I, I yeah, go for it. I mean, I would say there is curiously, they're tough, but they are, there is weirdly hope. Oh, God, yeah, yeah. They're all about um, taking, yeah, humans in the worst situations. How can we live in this? And not just endure, but find a means to, to thrive. I think, to find love and hope. Let's give them the start and then see if they go and read it. My last night of childhood began with a visit home. Tagatoi's sister had given us two sterile eggs. Tagatoi gave one to my mother, brother and sisters. She insisted that I eat the other one alone. It didn't matter. There was still enough to leave everyone feeling good. Almost everyone. My mother wouldn't take any. She sat watching everyone drifting and dreaming without her. Most of the time, she watched me. I lay against Tagatoi's long, velvet underside, sipping from my egg now and then, wondering why my mother denied herself such a harmless pleasure. Less of her hair would be grey if she indulged now and then. The eggs prolonged life, prolonged vigour. My father, who'd never refused one in his life, had lived more than twice as long as he should have. And toward the end of his life, when he should have been slowing down, he'd married my mother and fathered four children. But my mother seemed content to age before she had to. I saw her turn away as several of Tagatoi's limbs secured me closer. Tagatoi liked our body heat and took advantage of it whenever she could. When I was little and at home more, my mother used to try and tell me how to behave, to be respectful and obedient. Tagatoi was the Tlick government official in charge of the preserve, thus the most important of her kind. It was an honour, my mother said, that such a person had chosen to come into the family. My mother was at her most formal and severe when she was lying. I mean, just the more you read by and about Octavia Butler, the more admirable she becomes, I think. And I particularly loved, there's, a, there's an essay called Furor Scribendi, which is kind of like the, the, the kind of the fury or the anger of a of a writer. Um, she said that the most important habit, it's kind of writing tips. The most important habit a writer has is uh, is persistence. That that's more important than talent and inspiration or even imagination. Yeah, there's a wonderful thing that goes around, which is her her kind of manifesto to herself, uh, her promises that she makes herself. You will right you will win awards you will be successful you will achieve you will be known your stories will not be forgotten it's incredible in her own handwriting as well uh, i mean worth, I, I was, just before we move on because i did i did think and this will come out in the next book we're going to talk about is that some people have said whether you know that they're obviously i think that it's too easy just to say oh this is a story about slavery and, and that must be deeply annoying but she did say that the idea of being able to imagine for black people to be able to imagine themselves in a reality that isn't defined 
by by the, the the history that they they have is 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 why science fiction works for them and it, it strikes me that that must be an issue too for other people who feel that they have been excluded from the the, the mainstream of history um and i i wondered if that was a, a good way of you just saying a little bit about what you're doing with your with your in your sort of publishing role Yes, so um, uh, so what we're what we're doing with Gold SF is uh, way back time back in the eighties, the Women's Press had a list uh, which was um, a science fiction list. So I think we all know the Women's Press kind of black and white zigzag spines, with but the, with the iron, yeah, with the iron, yes, <laughs> steaming ahead. Um, but the the spines I looked out for were the grey ones, ones yeah. and that was the feminist science fiction list. And I think over about six or seven years, they published maybe. 33 dozen science fiction novels. It's, it's the first time that Joanna Russ is printed in Britain. Uh, and I came across these in a um, little box of books in uh, Newnham JCR in 1991. There was a collection of short stories by Lisa Tuttle. And, uh, you know, you, you find something like this and you go, oh, right, these are the things I'm meant to be reading rather than all this stuff people's giving me. So I, I've been hunting these down over and over and over the years. And then Around about just just a couple of years, but about eighteen months before lockdown, a, a, a friend of mine at uh, at Goldsmiths, um, Sarah Kemba, who's the director of Goldsmiths Press, uh, we met at a talk I was giving about feminist science fiction, and we kind of looked at each other. and We went, "Why don't we do this again?" Um, you know, because this list was incredible. It put voices into print that didn't get heard. Um, it it gave people a sort of space in which they could experiment both with prose and ideas uh, and styles. We can do this, you know. You you've got the press. I've got the. Let's <laughs> put on the show right here, and this is exactly what we're trying to do with Goldsmiths with Goldsmiths. It's like uh, Lucy Scholes wrote a brilliant piece in Prospect mm-hmm. about the archive hunters. You know, people are out there who, and she said what Carmen Khalil had said about Virago is that Virago will never. That will never end. That process is yeah. not. You, you, you don't get to. Oh, we've done all the. We've done all the undiscovered women writers now, because yeah. in fact, what happens is, as 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 uh, we're about to go, as we're about to find out, net ne- your next book, uh, undiscovered writers of science fiction, be they male or female, are, are, are always coming out of the woodwork. Absolutely, uh, male or male, female, or indeed persons, as uh, uh, my. <laughs> my fourth book is very much about. So I've picked a novel called Proud Man uh, by a writer called Catherine Burdekin. Um, now, Catherine Burdekin is a very elusive figure um, who, who published under several names. Uh, it's not her birth name. Uh, her birth name was uh, Catherine Cade. She's the youngest sister of uh, Rowena Cade, who founded the Minack Theatre, um, and uh, sort of born at the end of the 19th century. It goes to Cheltenham Ladies College. Her family won't send her to Oxford, but she she gets married, goes off to Australia, leaves the husband, comes back, moves in with uh, a woman. Together they bring up her children, and through all this time she's writing and writing and writing and writing. And in the 1930s she publishes um, probably her best-known book, which people may have heard of, under her pseudonym, Murray Constantine, she publishes a book called Swastika Night, which is a a grimly dystopian view of uh, the Third Reich a thousand years uh, time uh, and uh, sort of traces the connections between misogyny and imperialism and militarism. Uh, very, very, very good book. Uh, I came across, across this in what I think I was um, 
Peter Carey's big bumper book of utopian fun. You know, that <laughs> favourite book of utopias. Yeah. Yeah. I'm kind of reading through that. And this one catches my eye. It's, it's extremely... All these books are coming across as quite bleak. <laughs> I, I am quite a happy person. Um, so I come up with this really shocking excerpt from Swastika Night. And I became fascinated uh, by this writer. She's extremely difficult uh, to track down. Um, uh, uh, Swastika Night stays in print. Uh, it's the only one still in print. Um, but but by the by the sixties, she had completely disappeared um, uh, uh, by the time of her death. And she's found in one of these sort of literary treasure hunts by a, an American academic called Daphne Patai, who finds Swastika Night and reads it and thinks there must be more of this tracks down the cottage where uh, Cade lived with her partner until her death, goes upstairs, finds this trunk, opens it up and finds almost a dozen unpublished novels, one of which uh, she puts into print uh, in the 80s called The End of This Day's Business, uh, which is a kind of companion piece to Swastika Night. It's a, it's a feminist uh, <laughs> dystopia. Uh, what what would it be like if women were running well? Not as good. Um, so uh, either not as bad as Swastika Night by any means. Um, but the book I picked uh, is one called Proud Man, uh, and uh, this is another book from the thirties. And again, I think we're given what we're given in the dispossessed. We're given an outsider's view of uh, uh, another world. Uh, in this case, uh, Earth in the nineteen thirties. That sort of low dishonest decade uh and a traveler comes uh, back from the future the person um from maybe a thousand years in our future from a world where uh f- fully realized people are androgynous they self-fertilize the vegetarian it's a, it's a little bit you know um uh it's very 30s <laughs> <laughs> yeah and what we see is the person's view of this terrible world that human beings are, are trying to struggle and live in although which she calls um, subhuman which is which is what makes it so so powerful because she's sort of sketching out what perhaps human beings might evolve into and there's all kinds of extraordinary stuff isn't there the fact that that she can't believe that we have lost use or we don't have the use of our senses you know that we that, that we we can't hear properly and we can't taste properly um and we're locked into this very very she thinks this very very kind of unhappy making sexual uh, dichotomy between yeah. men and women the opening section uh which is is almost like a long essay in a way is uh, it goes through everything you've got toxic masculinity the fragility of masculinity you've got the sexual double standard uh you know it, it's all just laid down there she had a fascinating writing style apparently her writing style was sort of automatic writing she would kind of write a book in 5 or 6 weeks and then that was it. The book was done. And it, it means that she's patchy, but it also means that some of these, there are just these periods of real visionary quality. Uh, there's there's no other writer like her. I think she's um, fascinating. I'd love to get my hands on those other books. They're in a, I, I saw them, um, I saw the archive up for sale in round about 2001, 2003, but I didn't have a spare 20K at the time. <laughs> But I'll I'll get to those books one day and and, I mean, and write she, about her. I know that that some of them have been reissued mm. by the feminist press. Proud Man is a, 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 a ostensibly available by feminist yeah. press in the US. I haven't. And um, um, Golanks, who do a very good ebook range of yeah. uh, out of print science fiction, have got. I, I think they've got 
Proud Man, Svostakanai, and The End of This Day's Business. Um, under the name Murray Constantine. Under Murray Constantine, yeah. It's SF Gateway is the e-book imprint. So those three 30s utopias, dystopias, you can kind of get your hands on. I mean, you know, she, she, I think should be read next to Huxley and Orwell, really, because this is this is a much more, um, it's a much subtler and more interesting, um, I'm, I'm sure you'll read us a bit, but Constantine also I just discovered, she did, that name, the identity wasn't, it wasn't until the 80s that her, that, that, that's exactly yeah. When when Daphne Patai does this sort of literary, you know, uh, a detective work and connects Constantine to uh, uh, to the Cade name. And yeah. when Proud was was Proud Man was was reviewed in 1934, mm-hmm. a lot of people thought it was Olaf Stapleton. The, yes, the, yeah, the, the sci-fi writer. Yeah, exactly that. Uh, and uh, definitely uh, a bloke. Definitely a bloke. Yeah, it's <laughs> tip tree all over again, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. something ineluctably masculine about this prose. <laughs> Except it's by a woman. Yeah. Yes. Um, why don't you read a, a little? I mean, I have to say, I really, I was completely bl- not sideways by this. Had book. you read it before? I had, had you... not. No, never heard. Never heard of it. Never read it before. And I'm interested in in dystopian fantasy from that period, sort of 30s, 40s, 50s. And I'd never heard of Catherine Burdekin. So, it's that thing, isn't it, that we think that the, 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 the you know, the, the the trans debate, such as it is today. Um, yeah, this wasn't being had before. I mean, this this is absolutely explicitly what this is about. Absolutely, which is, which is that yeah, mm-hmm. you know, the polarity between the sexes is not as straightforward as, as it may appear. Exactly that, and I think these these histories get lost very quickly. And and this is the value of going back to texts like these. You you find these voices. If you, if you can't find these voices around you, you have to go to the past and find them, and you can find a kind of continuity of being in them. When the narrator in the book is a woman, there's a brilliant interview with a bishop, which <laughs> just uh, and he, trying to deal with <laughs> trying to deal with, um, with with her worldview. It's absolutely it's beautifully yeah. done. So I I've picked a little bit that 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 doesn't really it's sort of only tangentially takes us inside the mind of the person. It's it's while she's living as a woman, and she's befriended another woman called Leonora. And one of the qualities that uh, the person has is that they're able to sort of, um, there's, as with many science fiction, there's a, there's a kind of um, psychic uh, abilities as well. And, and the person's able to sort of feel and hear what Leonora uh, is thinking. So uh, this is a glimpse into Leonora's mind and what the person notices about her. On the way to the park, she didn't talk very much, Leonora. Her thoughts were very jerky for everything she saw and heard had a front place in them. Had she expressed them in words, they would have been something like this. This is a very peculiar woman, lovely and somehow good and yet not good at all. I I am at ease with her. I shouldn't be with an ordinary good person. That man either drinks has a weak heart or indigestion. His head is a fine shape. This bus is travelling very badly. Ethel's supposed to stop cars knocking. Could the LGOC afford Ethel? There's an awful green hat. Some women are colourblind. We know a certain amount of what Charmaine did. We don't know at all about how he thought. How can one make him in a novel think enough like we think, and yet enough differently? Horns of Roland faintly blowing. Alethea Gifford Verona. Why Gifford? It isn't her real name. No, none of it. When people give their real names, they have a heightened consciousness of identity. 
she has none. What lovely skin she has. She makes that woman over there look like a Dutch doll. Yes, you, a silly Dutch doll. You look with jealous enmity at my lovely Alethea. I don't wonder. Why should she wear a hat if she doesn't want to? You could go up without a hat. Your hair's foul, stringy and greasy. That man's in trouble. His wife, his business or his children. It goes on a little bit like this. She's unique. I could tell her anything. I know she would never be shocked and never be admiring. She's absolutely cold and pure and still. That Charmel novel won't do. It's silly and fussy and stupid. <laughs> so we're inside Leonora's head there and the person is sort of picking up the impressions of her mind. It is such an odd, strange and compelling book. It really is. It's properly original. I haven't I haven't read anything like it. It is, yeah. And, and, and it's this thing I'm saying with science fiction that sometimes you forgive inelegancies because the ideas that you're getting... And almost that the inelegancies are part of it because people are stretching their thinking, they're stretching their imagination and, and language is harder to manipulate when you're doing that. Yeah, and it, it gives you a, a, an insight into all kinds of more interesting debates taking place in the 1930s than perhaps the ones that we that have become the, 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 the ones that have been signed off by the culture, as it were. Exactly, um, much more about gender and sexuality and gender expression. Yeah, a really interesting book and writer. Right, we're we're coming up to the the final choice, which is um, has to be uh, one that is close to your heart. Introduced, bring on, bring on Vonda. Bring on <laughs> the great, the great Vonda McIntyre. Yeah. So we've we've done a Doctor Who book on backlisted. My God, we now now we're going to do a Star Trek book. <laughs> <laughs> so I've picked a, a wonderful novel, which is. Uh, uh, the novelization of the movie Star Trek IV: The Voyage Home. Now, I, I'm I'm sure that listeners to this podcast immediately are able to uh, tell me which Star Trek film that one is. It is, of course, the one with the whales. Yeah, <laughs> it's the one where Kirk and Spock go back in time and kidnap a pair of humpback whales and bring them back to the future to save the Earth from destruction. That one, the one with the whales. Everyone knows the one with the whales. Uh, and it's a great film. It's uh, it's loads of fun. Uh, uh, it's an absolute joy. Genuinely funny, Genuinely funny as well. I mean, I I, I did rewatch the movie for for to, for this podcast, um, and and then cross checked it with to see whether favourite scenes were were in the book, and most of them were, including perhaps my favourite my favourite line in any of the Star Trek films, which is when the citologist uh, asks Kirk. <laughs> He said, "So what are you from? So what you're telling me you're from outer space?" Uh, Kirk blew out his breath. No, he said, "I'm really, I'm from Iowa. I just work in outer space." John, a line that Sorry. I get to say surprisingly often. <laughs> no, I'm from St Helens. I just work in outer space. <laughs> yeah, work in outer. I love it. So um, I've picked this book because uh, you know uh, this is where my career went. Yeah, yes. Some, somehow all that youthful promise turned into writing <laughs> Star Trek novels. Um, but um, I love this book, uh, and uh, partly the reason I love it—it's fun. It's entertaining. It's got all the joy of the film. But then, because it's a novel, uh, McIntyre has all these extra spaces in which to uh, in which to put her own sort of spin on the Star Trek universe. And what I love most about this book, it ends up decentering human beings completely. It ends up as a kind of peace treaty between uh, uh, two humpback whales. 
and an ancient space intelligence. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's got nothing to do with the humans. The you know Spock is kind of brokering the treaties like the middleman, uh, but the humans are kind of peripheral uh, to the uh, to the end of this book. And in all ways, I think McIntyre is putting her vision of the future down on the page. Uh, and if I could sing the praises of Vonda McIntyre, we'll come to that in a minute, but uh, um, I'll, I'll sing her praises very, very highly. Well, I was going to ask you because um, we should, I mean, she's pretty remarkable. Um, she was the second woman to win a Nebula uh, and, and the third to win the Hugo Award. She won a, a second Nebula. I love this. Uh, her first one was in 1978 for Dream Snake. And then she won a second Nebula for a book that sounds amazing called The Moon and the Sun. And it beat George R.R. R. Martin's A it Game did. of Thrones. <laughs> it did. <laughs> and it, it, it's described as an alternate history set in the court of Louis XIV, where the Sun King believes his immortality is, in, is assured if he devours the flesh of a sea creature. It's a belting novel. It's absolutely I just, great. I'm, I'm, I've, yeah. got it, I've written it down. That yeah. sounds right. Oh, just, just read all her books. I mean, from Dream Snake, which is a stone cold feminist classic right up to the moon and the sun um it there's a, a film got made of it um uh starring piers brosnan which is really so it's quite I, I, it's not very good apparently um there's an unpublished novel which i've read called the curve of the world which is outstandingly good it's a kind of life's work to get this book into print um it's about an ancient minoan um civilization and you can kind of read it alongside uh the dawn of everything graber and wengru it's kind of it's kind of novelizing the ideas of that book. It's incredible. She was an outstandingly good writer. And that's the reason she got this gig. This was a high profile gig to uh, relaunch Star Trek as a major franchise. Roddenberry does the first novel of the first movie and they look around, they go, who's the best science fiction writer in America at the moment? Vonda McIntyre. Uh, and they get her to do these three books of the next uh, Star Trek two, three, and four. And they're 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 and they're they're in that great Simon Schuster they pocketbook book yeah. series that, yeah, yeah, yeah. that people know and love and have written for. <laughs> <laughs> just just teeing you up there, but it. I mean, it's it. I'm, I just wanted to ask you about the process of because uh, I suppose that's for me is interesting is that you've got the bare bones of the story there. But what you're saying is that what McIntyre does, and I mean, is that something you that excites you as well as a writer, that you you've, you've got a franchise, so people know who the kind of characters are, but how you are able to to as it were insert your own kind of creative and imaginative vision. Absolutely, and I think it was reading books like this that gave me the kind of courage to do that. That I could kind of go, you know, I don't I don't just want these to be Star Trek novels. I want them to be my perspective on what matters about utopian fiction or you know these franchises have a long life for a reason people love them uh they want to be with these characters they want to be in these situations if i can sneak in a bit of you know anarchism or feminism or whatever i believe in and get that on the shelves of a walmart in oklahoma city i think i've done my job <laughs> but uh, and and that in a way it kind of links all these books, doesn't it? That there's a, there was I found a great quote that, that Theodore Sturgeon about science fiction said it's it's one of its pri its prime function is to create other kinds of social systems to see how they would work or if they would work. That kind of and I, that's in a way what you're saying is although it may not seem that there's a political uh theme to even to star trek but of course it, of course it's always there because we're always projecting out from our own 
from our own reality into what would an alternative reality look like? Would it exactly work? Exactly that, yeah. If Margaret Thatcher's saying there is no alternative, science fiction is saying, look, I've oh, yeah. got half a dozen just here. <laughs> and if you don't like these, I've got others. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We could just come up with something better because you know, um, it's got to be better than this. <laughs> do you want to Do you want to read us a bit of, of Vonda's Deathless? I, I will. Just, just Von, to, Vonda's just... phenomenal. We should also mention, we shouldn't forget, Handheld reprinted yes, her first did. novel, The Exile Waiting, so uh, which is a companion. That's handheld to... press. Uh, Kate yeah. McDonald's brilliant handheld press. Who uh, again, friends of friends of the show, but that's very a... much so. And that's yeah. a companion piece to Dream Snake, which is her great her great novel. Uh, so I, I did want to mention that, but I'll just read you the, the very very start of uh, Star Trek: The Voyage Home. So it's very pretty, and we are with the ancient space intelligence, just orientating people. The Traveller sang. Amid its complexities and its delicate, immensely long memories, it sang. In the complete cold of deep space, the song began at one extremity, spun in circles of superconducting power and speed and evolved. It culminated in the Traveller's heart, after a time counted, not in micromeasures, but on the galactic scale of the formation of planets. The Traveller sent each finished song into the vacuum. In return, it received new songs from other beings. Thus, it wove a network of communication across the galaxy, oblivious to the distances it connected many species of sentient creatures, one with the other. From time to time, it discovered a newly evolved intelligence to add to its delicate fabric. On those rare occasions, it rejoiced, on much rarer occasions, it grieved. Brilliant. Lovely. She's so good. She's so um, good. And that's and that obviously great tips there as well with um, for other Wanda McIntyre books, which are Dream Snake and The Exile Waiting, which is uh, the one that's published by the first novel that's published by Handheld, and uh, The Moon and the Sun which is the alternate history set in the court of Louis XIV. Great. I mean, Una, new worlds and new civilizations. We have boldly, we have boldly, we boldly went. Yeah. <laughs> we boldly went. Unfortunately, that is all we have time for. Yeah. So I just wanted to say thank you. What an amazing collection My of books. My pleasure. Well, it's and great we fun. will obviously be putting links to all of them up on the website, as we normally do, and in our bookshop, our backlisted bookshop. So thank you to Una. Thank you also to Tess, who is uh, Tess Davidson, who is uh, standing in for Nikki today. She uh, works with us as producer uh, and researcher and uh, many other things besides. So thank you, Tess. We, as you know, are technically <laughs> technically on sabbatical and we'll be back with normal service will be resumed in April. But in the meantime, there is nothing to stop you downloading all previous 176 or something episodes links clips suggestions for further reading on our website backlisted.fm and we're always pleased if you contact us on twitter and facebook and indeed now on instagram you can also support us directly by supporting our patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted for a modest sum patrons get to hear backlisted episodes early and entirely advertising free and those who've subscribed to the lot listener level get two whole extra podcasts each month. We call it Locklisted, and it features the three of us talking over books, films and music we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight. 
that, though, is the end of our backlisted science fiction special. Is there anything, Una, that you want to add? Anything else you want to throw in as a, as a sort of a farewell observation? Oh, I mean, I could talk about this stuff all night, so I'd better stop now. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. It's been fun. And look out for, we will be reissuing um, some of, um, at least one, possibly two more uh, of uh, older episodes before we return in April. And there will be one more, I think, at least one more special before that too. But thank you all for listening. Uh, see you all in a fortnight. Thank you.